This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. There were fireworks at Toronto City Hall last night. And you're going to have to, I'm going to have to play the Denzel Washington lawyer in Philadelphia card. You know, I, I wouldn't have his mustache. He really haven't, hadn't evolved in terms of, uh, of his views on, on gay people. But, but I like his quote. I like his quote here. Explain this to me like I'm a five-year-old. And it was effective in the courtroom for his case with him with him representing the Tom Hanks character in Philadelphia. Explain to me like a five year old how the City Council of Toronto could not find a way to even consider looking inward at itself and saying, are we spending too much money on anything on anything? Last night, they decided they would not do in essence a, a a house cleaning financially there hasn't been one done since 2012 they would not look inward and say we know we've had a lot dumped on us we know we have a billion and a half a year deficit by the way that deficit doesn't magically disappear at the end of 2024 or 25 your the way you spend money you have more going out than you do coming in Billion dollars for this, billion dollars for that. I've heard the excuses about um, the COVID pandemic. I have. I understand that it was a unique time. Don't get me wrong. I get that. But this city is incredibly, it, it seems terribly difficult for them to be able to look inside their own rooms and and look for efficiencies that are working and inefficiencies that are not. I don't get it. Brad Bradford was uh, on the show yesterday, city councilor. He ran for mayor in the summer. He had a tough time. It was not the result many people expected. It was not the result he hoped for. But undeterred, he still wants to change things at city council. And he talked about that on Toronto Today yesterday with the idea of at least considering, are we spending too much on this? Is there a service that we don't necessarily have to provide to the public? Here's how that sounded. We really need to get back to the core of municipal services. And I think a lot of people out there listening right now have seen a degradation and a deterioration of our parks, of our roads, of sidewalk clearing in the wintertime. Uh, you know, we have to get better at doing the basics. And that might mean we have to stop, uh, stop doing all the other things that have been thrust upon local governments across the province through successive years of downloading and, and you know, the province and the federal mm-hmm. government throwing these sort of responsibilities at the at the feet of municipalities. That's right. He lays it at the doorstep of the provincial government, to some extent the federal government, and says we're, we're getting pushed around here and they're giving us stuff that they should pay for. You remember who finished second in the mayoral election? Anna Bailau did. What did Anna Bailau say she's going to do? She's going to march right up to Queen's Park, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, and she's going to ask them to take on some of the cost of the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner Expressway. Why? Because that's something that benefits all of Ontario. When that's maintained, when that's a good thoroughfare, when you can get into the biggest city in the province. What do you think Doug Ford would have said about taking on some of the costs of the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner? But you can ask and you can try. Not many people thought that would be successful, but it's something. And I'm sure Anna Bailau would have also had the concept because she has been a professional and run businesses and on and on. And she would probably look and say, are we doing too much with this? Is this getting is this service getting duplicated? And yesterday 
council voted not in favor of any of those things. They, 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 have, they have not looked inward at all with the idea of a core services review. Here's another one. Brad Bradford mentioned to us the land transfer tax. He wanted to waive it. And he wanted to give young professionals, first-time home buyers, um, you, you and a partner, you and a, a friend, to men, to women, men and women, women and men, whatever, buying a first home. And he wanted to waive the land transfer tax. This has not been done. They haven't updated the number involved where that land transfer waiving would start since 2008. Is your home worth what it was in 2008? Eight, it's not that's so interesting. So think what it's like to try and buy one right now. And many of you are nodding or you're banging the steering wheel or you're slapping the table and spilling coffee everywhere going exactly. There's like you're absolutely living in a different reality if you don't update that, that number in 15 years. You should be updating that number every 15 months and you haven't done it for a decade and a half. Here's Brad Bradford, Toronto City Councilor, making the plea on our show yesterday to urge City Council to do this. I'm fighting for families out there who want to have access to home ownership. Last year, 50,000 people left the city of Toronto to find more affordable places to live in Ontario. The first time home buyers rebate has been set at $400,000 since 2008. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a lot of properties trading in Toronto for $400,000. <laughs> I want to increase that to the average price of a condo unit here in the city, $750,000. And, you know, at the same time, property values have increased three times over that period. And city council has done nothing. Let's make it easier for families, for those first time home buyers to access housing here in the city of Toronto. It's something we can do immediately to help the middle class. By the way, what do you do if you want something and in the geographical area that it is uh, unaffordable, what do you do then? You will go to get that thing that you must have, you're compelled by, you're obsessed by, and you will find it. And you'll go elsewhere to get it. And that's already happening in Toronto with 50,000 people living leaving the city proper last year. This is madness to me. Utter madness. And when Bradford put that forward last night... The, the motion failed 13 to 10. At least 10 people voted for it. I applaud the 10 people that wanted this. They're trying to do something to stop the flight out of the city of Toronto, where we want people to live, spend money, send their kids to school, raise their families, and let them raise their own families there. It's not for everybody. Of course, there's a baseline. You can't just park yourself in the middle of Paris or Tokyo or Berlin or Lisbon, Portugal or London, England or Toronto, Ontario, and think, hey, It'll all just happen perfectly for me. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it won't. But it, it, it is absolutely beyond the pale to shut that down and think, ah, people, can, we'll leave the number at $400,000. Why, why have the damn number? Why even have the number? You can't afford anything for $400,000. Gord Perk, city councilor, made this point, and he would be aligned with Olivia Chow here. He wants to give people things. He doesn't like cuts. I don't like them either, but he makes the point that they don't want to bring in a, a, a consultant to look under the kitchen cushions or under the couch cushions, I should say, or in that jar at the far end of the kitchen uh, and look for ways that Toronto can save money. There is no consultant in the world who can come in and tell you how you can cut costs that are imposed on us by other orders of government. You actually need the other orders of government to take that back. Okay, well, I'd like to hear some more banging of pots and pans 
from city council about what you want taken back and say so. There, to give credit, Olivia Chow did that with refugees. Olivia Chow did that with shelter spaces. You're going to have to do it a lot more. Get it organized. Go to Queens Park and tell them what you want. And by the way, he's not right about that. If I take on a new car and now I have car payments, guess what? That's $300 every two weeks or $282.48 every two weeks. I can't spend on something else. So if, if, if you're adding expenses, you got to cut expenses. We all do it every day. And this city seems utterly incapable of recognizing that it's an important thing to do when it's our tax dollars. You would do it in your court. Perks is doing it in his own household. And he's been more willing to do it at the place he goes to work for you, for us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. And Brad Bradford, city councilor, joins us in studio. I know I said, listen, come back on a second day in a row. Um, but I, I thought your one last night was a no brainer. You were going to update the um, the the land transfer tax and allow, in essence, it not to be paid for buying property over seven hundred fifty or at seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or under. Brad and the number right now from fifteen years ago is four hundred grand, and you you can't buy a, a standalone garage for four hundred grand. In the worst part of this city, it's a, it's an absolutely outdated number, and you only had you lost that vote by ten to th- by thirteen to ten. Yeah, there were a couple councillors that flipped at the last minute. There, I was disappointed because you know our long term financial plan. Ultimately, this is about affordability in the city of Toronto and affordability for young families, affordability for the middle class. Uh, as you said, you know, if you pull up MLS, the only thing you're going to find sub 400 grand right now is uh, is a parking spot. So we needed as a council to take a step to make a tangible improvement in affordability. The whole idea of a first time homebuyers rebate back in 2008 when they brought in the land transfer tax was saying, look, People are making the biggest purchase of their life. This is the biggest tax bill they'll ever get smacked with. Let's give them a break. We don't want to balance the books on the backs of hardworking young families and first-time homebuyers. Well, 15 years later, home prices have tripled in Toronto, and $400,000 hasn't moved a nickel. So my proposal was to take that up to $750,000. I know that sounds like a lot, but that is the average price of a condominium in Toronto and provide immediate relief to the families and folks who are trying to get in the real estate market who still want to realize the dream of home ownership. And last night, council slammed the door on that. Well, think about this. I mean, it, it, it's it's a lot, but you are, you're not coming from uh, tremendous means and you don't have a lot of cash sitting on a giant pile like uh, Montgomery Burns in your living room. Uh, 20% on that down payment's $150,000 cash. Big so a lot, of, a lot of young couples don't have that laying around. They simply do not. And I had people tell me last night when I mentioned I was disappointed this didn't go through. Well, the job is to, you know, that it's better they, they take revenue from people who are well off. I'm like, if you think buying a condo in this city right now, if it's your primary home for a young family or a young couple is 750 grand, you, you're living on planet delusional. It's not. That's a starter in this city for better or worse. And I would respectfully push back and say, you know, you tell the, all those the 50,000 people 
who left the city of Toronto last year in a flight for affordability. I met with the Board of Trade last week and they were outlining this problem. 50,000 people, many of them young families, those are people who have good jobs and are working and are making contributions to our economy. They are not a draw on services. They are additive. You know, they're growing our economy here in the city and they are leaving and they are going to Ajax and Pickering and Mississauga and Brampton. Where it's still expensive, but not here. Right, and beyond. And where they're not paying a land transfer tax. And so- our future success as a city, it's essential that we have those people here making contributions to Toronto, growing our economy, uh, growing our economy, and right now they can't afford to be here. So, you know, yesterday we approved, in theory, 7,500 additional affordable housing units, 2,500 rent geared to income units. That is going to cost the city mega, mega, mega bucks. And we have no idea what that's going to cost. We just know that, you know, with the mayor, we signed up for that. But those are folks on the margin, and we always have to take care of people who are more vulnerable and and folks of lower socioeconomic means. But we also have to think about the middle class. We also have to think about the families who are trying to make it here in Toronto and can also make an economic contribution to growing up. Many of whom who might have voted for Olivia Chow or voted for a Councillor Perks or a Councillor Bravo. Some of the people that they may align with. Brad, honestly, to me... This is not about left, center, right, any of that stuff. This is about what's affordable. And so many of these policies are going to chase out people just on those fringes who you we all know what it was like to be 25, 26, 27. And you're like, I don't make much money. I got student loans, but it's going to get better. It's going to get better and life will evolve. I've got to suck it up, live paycheck to paycheck and then and then move up the ladder. Hopefully they're gone. They're gone. They're getting out of Toronto and they're not going to see their success in this city. Well, and I think you couple that with, you know, all the proposals of different taxes last night, you know, there was a proposal for a, a sales tax that passed, uh, you know, the, the mayor and, and our budget chief, Shelley Carroll, uh, really want us to go after the province to get a sales tax here and make everything more expensive in Toronto. That is a regressive tax because if you make 15 bucks an hour or if you make 100 grand a year, you're paying the same thing on every goods. There was a motion for an income tax. There was a motion for a payroll tax. Obviously, the municipal land transfer tax on on properties $3 million or more got increased. And yet nobody wants to look under the hood. Nobody wants to look internally at City Hall at how we could find savings on our $16.5 billion budget. And I found it just shocking. And and you're right, I was a little frustrated. You know, council's position, the mayor's position is to go out to people and option number one for the financial crisis is tax people more. And there was all of this fear-mongering around, you know, a core services review why wouldn't you do a core services? You? Why would we not, even if we could find a couple couple hundred million dollars of savings, if we could find $10 million of savings, don't we owe it to Torontonians and to taxpayers to look under the hood, to look internally first before we go cap in hand and asking everybody to pay more in an affordability Every crisis? Every household does it. Every household does it multiple times a year. You don't think a private business like this is going to do it as well, but it feels like when it's the public's money, it, it it just keeps rolling in. And eventually, guess what? Less people living here means less tax revenue. It means less income tax. It means less people going here. It's fine to see, ah, it's busy on this weekend. A lot of people going to the Jays game. A lot of people going to the Caribbean Carnival. You and I have talked about transit. You need people most days, Monday to Friday, the nine to fivers to be riding transit, eating in the city, shopping in the city. When that stops, I lived out in Metro Detroit. You know this for 10 years. Downtown Detroit, I don't think we're headed towards downtown Detroit, but it'll look more like Detroit than the Toronto of 10 years ago did. It will. And that's the risk, right, is that there is a concentration of poverty and a concentration of wealth and the core 
middle class is hollowed out completely because they can't afford to be here. And that is the direction that we will be going in if we don't start to do some better fiscal management on our end, look for those efficiencies. And and honestly, I, I was trying to make the case to my colleagues. Core services review is also about identifying what are the core services that local government in Toronto ought to be delivering, is best positioned to deliver for. And hey, what are the things that are effectively extensions of provincial and federal jurisdiction that we're holding the bag for right now that we ought to not be paying for? And so having that information would also arm us with more ammunition when we go to do our advocacy. But city council wanted to put its head in the sand, ignore the problem, and just raise people's taxes. I got two minutes here. Do you think you know where some of the inefficiencies are in city hall? I think that there's a lot of inefficiency when it comes to our pro- procurement and our contracting. duplicate spending or bad contracts uh, or silos. The, 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 the public would be horrified thinking you spent this much on that. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm not saying that there is one big ticket item, but I could tell you, you know, if, if we're planting trees in the wrong spot and have to send contractors out to go rip them out uh, afterwards because somebody didn't do their dil- due diligence, the amount of money that we spend on it, you know, we spent uh, city hall spent almost a million dollars updating the audio visual equipment and the council chambers. And when I sat down yesterday, it looked like a new microphone and a new monitor. So it was kind of hard to wrap my head around. So it's a million dollars for 40 microphones and monitors. Yeah. Yeah. Don't quote me on the number of microphones and monitors, but there's 25 counselors. So, and, and I, some of them need two sometimes. I almost fell off. Yeah. I almost fell off my chair though. You know, these are the types of things, um, the gross amount of spending, the inefficiencies that just drive people crazy. Do, and you, do you think the, the premier will authorize a sales tax for the city? You know what? That's the thing. I, I can't imagine that we would want to put Toronto in a less competitive position. I can't imagine that we would want to make things more expensive in the most expensive city in the country. If it was 1% of the HST, I've advocated for it if you can grab 1% of the HST. So the HST needs to be redefined and then the city can be evolved. I, involved. I know it works for New York. I know it works for Chicago to have their own taxes, especially in a big tourist city. It would, it's not going to work the same way in Sudbury that it is in Toronto. Right. And, and you know what? Having a piece of the existing HST... Absolutely. And I think that's why we do need to hammer out a new fiscal framework with the province and the federal government saying, hey, we're delivering all these things for you, whether it's transit or refugees or other things. Uh, You got to pay for that. And we're happy to do it, but you got to pay. Existing point on the HST, that's fine. But the idea that we're going to bring in something special for Toronto and make this city more expensive, you would close entire industries overnight. If you were a a furniture shop or audiovisual equipment or a car dealership, like good luck. Restaurants, you're already facing a tipping crisis. People are really stressed and and offended about the automatic tip on a on a cash on a on a debit machine. The last thing they need is another, you know, another one percent when they go eat. It, it just shows me that the city's moving in a different direction with this council. Mm. Um, you know, how tone deaf some of these individuals are to the affordability crisis of families and people who are trying to make it in Toronto. Um, and, you know, it comes down to priorities. And my priorities are fighting for families, fighting for the middle class, people who are trying to make it here in Toronto. And uh, unfortunately, last night, it looked like council was moving in a different direction. I got to go. I'd keep you for another segment. We're going to talk to Terry Fox's brother. Terry Fox, what a genuine Canadian hero for both of us and everybody listening. So 100%. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Brad Bradford, City Council, joining us in studio on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Big night uh, out in the city, I think, tonight on a a Thursday. um, You've got probably the biggest. It's it's a big uh, bar and going out night for students. It always was when I was a university student. Um, Greg Brady, Sheba Siddiqui, Gord Rennie uh, with you. Sheba, like on Thursday night, when you went to university, that was more the night than even Friday night to go out, wasn't it? Oh, it was it? pub night. 
100%. Yes, it was pub night. It was, um, oh, I forget what it's called now. It's right on Bloor Street. I went to U of T. Yes. So it was right on Bloor Street. It was the Brunny. Not, well, the Brunny was one thing, but there was another bar, and that's where everybody went. Like you think about it, when you probably went to U of T, even though you, 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 know, you were just getting a feel for the city, you're probably like, I like this place. You were probably at a new place so often that first year and that first fall. It's so much fun. It was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. I had the best time. I was living in res uh, on some of the best years of my life, high school and university. Oh, you're making me. Yeah. The, now, my recollection is the first Thursday I went out was, so we're talking September of 1990. But that day, the first September 1990 night out on a Thursday, and I knew the city of London pretty well, and I worked there and all that. But that was um, that was the election of Bob Ray. I absolutely remember oh, wow. that it was a Thursday election. And then Friday, everybody woke up and they're like, what? Huh? what? The, the majority government? The NEP? <laughs> Bob Ray? And it did. It, it did happen. 74 seats for him. David Peterson and the liberals fell uh, off the map. They had 36 seats. And Mike Harris and the conservatives just getting going had 20 seats. And they'd obviously turn that around five years later. But uh, Bob Ray ran the show for uh, for five years. So it's a, a big bar night. Tiff starts tonight. Um I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not, I have, I have no plans. I know that Mr. X and I are planning to go out. We just don't know what movie we're going to, Shiva. I, me, him and I are going to be buddies. Make sure you take a picture. I, absolutely. That's the trend. That's what you're supposed to do when you're with Mr. X. Now, I think he's going to pay for my ticket to the, to the TIFF well, film that we settle on. To. Yeah. He, we just, look, we do, we both just want to get houses built. I just want to see shovels in the ground, and and I think hanging out with Mister X tonight at at TIFF will be a get that selfie. Be a good thing. I think it'll be a, a very good thing. All right, we're gonna have Sean O'Shea on it at at, uh, at seven o'clock at seven o five. He's the investigative reporter. Consumer SOS is his segment on global news, but it's for a very unique reason, um, and this is quite uh, jarring. It, he went to a fatal collision car accident and was covering it. But he made the note that an elderly man passed away um, in Scarborough as a result of this accident. But they just left left him there um, in the parking lot on a day. And that's two days ago. The first really, really hot day of the week on Tuesday. And so it's 42 degrees. Forget about what it is on the pavement. And he wrote this, Sheba. It seems appalling that five hours after this fatal collision, the body removal crew has not arrived. The elderly man's remains are still beneath the tarp in the Scarborough parking lot in excruciating heat. The coroner left long ago. And he was not much rattled, Sean O'Shea. He was pretty rattled by it. I think we would be, too. I think this is when I first read this, I, I was disgusted. So this was a 37-year-old man who was operating a truck in that parking lot. I know that area very well. There's a very famous Chinese restaurant there. Uh, that people come from all over to go to. So there's a 37-year-old truck driver. He's reversing in the parking lot, and he reversed straight into two senior pedestrians. Mm -hmm. So the 79-year-old one was taken to a local trauma center, and then this man passed away. Uh, And his body sat there, according to Sean O'Shea's tweets, for six hours in the sun. So the coroner came and left. The truck that was actually involved with the driver, they left. Uh, but that man's body sat there in 42 degrees Celsius heat for s- over six hours. With there, there are restaurants surrounding that, so there are people, in, patrons in restaurants, who can fully see the body. Sure, there's a tarp covering it, but everybody knows what's underneath it in full view. Imagine being that man's family members. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah. yeah, they took a 79-year-old woman to a trauma center. So again, sh- she's alive and leaves and goes to the hospital for treatment. 
Um, and I wouldn't, I, I think I would have thought about this. My instant reaction is how do the police feel about this? But it's not the job of police. Every time we pass an accident on the highway or, or even on a side street and you see an ambulance and the EMTs, it's not the job of the police to remove a body. It is, this is a provincial matter with the office of the chief coroner. And but I know the coroner can't take the body away. It has exactly. to be a, a body removal crew that actually has to come. Yeah. So where were they? How is there a six hour delay? How yeah. is it okay to take your family out for dinner, first of all, and there's a dead body in the parking lot? And how is it okay for these people? These this family members watching their their father, their grandfather, their uncle's body just sitting there. Correct. And, and it, it, you know, people made the point to me, Sheba, that, you know, well, I, the, the people say, well, I live in a rural area and I'm in the middle of nowhere. But that's not what this is. I, th- oh, I think you have a sense. Like if... Um, if my parents live 25 minutes from any hospital, if my dad's out chopping wood today, if he's out chopping wood today, does he chop wood at his age? Yeah, he does. I that's don't know what amazing. we got. We mean, well, I don't know. We may, we may need to do, look no, into that. I, We're going to stop him. Incredible that he does that. Dad, that's a workout put, in Dad, itself. put down the axe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's incredible. Um, but but if if suddenly he passed out, and let's even say he didn't make it. Like you're not going to get anybody there in time. You're not. I. I. They. They are aware of this. But Sheba, you just said it. This is Scarborough. This is a busy parking lot. This is Toronto taxpayers. This is. Let's go. If you can get the ambulance, if you can get the EMT there so quick, I don't expect everybody to be ready to go and just to scoop up deceased bodies. Like I'm not. I'm being sensitive as opposed to being crass here. But there's no way, and I don't care about the weather. Like it's, I don't care if it's a lovely 18 degree day, but I think that impacted Sean. We'll ask him at seven o'clock. This impacted him dramatically because it, again, he's described it excruciating heat, 90 year old man. Yeah. I know there's nothing that can be done for him, but to your point, like I'll, a quick story. And I think I've mentioned this maybe before my, my mom's dad died in a car accident in Birmingham, Michigan on a left turn. He was a passenger my mom's uncle was the driver and I don't even know why they were in Michigan, but in November of 1980, they got sideswiped. My grandfather passed away and I, I, but I can't imagine my mom finding out after the fact that everything wasn't done efficiently and quickly. And the scene was, was clarified and cleared and all that stuff. I can't, like you just said, that 90 year old is some, is probably somebody's parent he's somebody's friend he's somebody some daughter some son is saying that's my dad and and he needs better he needs to be more dignified to more treated with more dignity after he just lost his life in a terrible accident that's just no there's no doubt about it and the family legally the family's not allowed to move the body you can't i mean say that was your great point no you're not so you have to sit there and watch it essentially rot in the sun how incredibly disrespectful. And Greg, what an awful story. What an awful experience for your family as sure. well to have to go through that. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's uh, my mom didn't get over it for she was 34 and raising, you know, he, he was so important to her. And I'm what am I? Nine. My sisters are six and four. Wow. So terrible, re- terrible you time really of life. It. You're oh, old yeah. enough to remember. It I detail. took the call. My uncle <gasps> called and said, can I talk to your mom? And they were <gasps> supposed to come visit us. And I was in the room and I knew right away because he told her on the phone and I was in the room and then I quietly left the room. And uh, yeah, it, it, it was not going to forget that anytime soon. And I remember it 43 <sighs> years later. And and I've, I see people writing on the National Post comment story. Should there be charges for indignity to a human body? 
well, I don't know, but I need something that tells me something like this will never happen again. And I think the coroner's office should be like, well, you know, as opposed to, well, we try everything we can. Just tell me how you prevent this again. Don't tell me what you do. Tell me how you're not going to do this again. That's all I need to know. Give me the factors that affect how uh, the timing of the transfer of a dead body impacts your workplace and how you can prevent this again. Do that instead of, well, we, we try everything we can. Just tell me how you're not going to do this again. Great point. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're very pleased to welcome on our next guest. He's an award-winning reporter uh, with our television friends at Global News. Um, And he's seen some things, but this one I I think we want to get right. We always talk about wait times for, you know, an MRI appointment. And we talk about wait times when you actually get into the emergency room. Is this scenario that he witnessed part of our struggling, broken healthcare system. Well, we want to try and get to the bottom of it, and he's damn good at that. He is Sean O'Shea uh, from Global News. Thanks so much for the time today and, and making it for our show. You know uh, that, that means a lot to me. Thanks very much for having me on, Greg. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, you were covering a fatal accident on Tuesday afternoon, and Tuesday afternoon was the real first day after Labor Day, a lot of people back at it, and, and the start of some sweltering weather. And not only, Sean, was the the, the accident um, and the incident horrific enough, but you witnessed something else and, and, and you couldn't you couldn't not talk about it. What happened and what did you see? Well, Greg, we were at a plaza in Scarborough and uh, we arrived there after uh, a truck had backed into two elderly people, killing one and the other was sent to the hospital. Unfortunately, the 90 year old man died and. Um, and that was terrible. It happens every day, but it had just been a few hours after Mayor Chow had talked about Vision Zero and the importance of safety on the streets. In any event, uh, as you know and your listeners would know, that there's a police investigation when somebody is killed, and the body is usually left at the scene until the coroner arrives and, and the police do their forensics investigation. That's all normal. That takes time. What was so horrific, uh, Greg, uh, what I witnessed and another journalist saw was that the, the man's body was left under the tarp in 32 degree weather, 42 with the heat index, for at least six hours. The coroner had left, the truck had been taken away, uh, the police were there guarding the body, but it's shocking to me that on a, the, the hottest day of the year, one of the hottest days of the year, they couldn't get that body out of there. It was just terrible to see. And this is an accident around like lunch hour, right? Just before twelve thirty. And you mentioned on on your Correct. on your Twitter page, you probably had to report from the scene for the five thirty news, report from the scene from the six o'clock news. But by the time the six o'clock news comes around, it's still there. Like Sean, I don't know the right number, and and maybe you and I could talk for an hour, and we wouldn't come to the right number. But I think we agree five and a half hours. Th- that can't be repeated. That should never ever transpire. Well, it was at least six hours because I had to leave with the TV truck at 6.30 and the body was still there. And I spoke to the police on scene, shrugging their shoulders. This is something that's in the in the control of the chief coroner's office. They're the ones that have to arrange for the body removal people to come. And everybody understands that there's a limited number of people to do different things. And body removal people will come to an apartment if somebody is, you know, is found, found deceased. But, I mean, talk about priorities. Would it not be the highest priority if somebody is is in plain view and it's the hottest, one of the hottest days of the year and 
can't you get somebody there faster? It just doesn't seem right. The office of the chief coroner told me yesterday that they, they work to, to do this in a timely way. They say they're investigating. Uh, but it just doesn't seem right. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're the family of the person who died and you find out about this, I mean, I hesitated for a moment to, to publicize it, but I mean, this is how things change, right? When we talk That's about right. things, when we hold people accountable for what they do, it just does not seem right. It didn't seem right, and uh, and a lot of the people who you know read about what I'd written and this other journalist had written said the same thing. Sean O'Shea is our guest, uh, joining us from Global News on Toronto today with Greg Brady on six forty Toronto. Um, and the police to to you know to come to their defense if anyone's thinking the cops should do something, it's really out of their jurisdiction. And I get that they're they're in agony over this also mental emotional agony because if one of them decides well let's move him to the shade or let's remove him from the scene the coroner is going to show up and ask why'd you do that yeah that's correct it's not it's not the fault of the police it's the responsibility of the office of the coroner to to enlist the people that they have they have people on contract to do this it just doesn't seem right especially i mean what was i mean we were in the tv truck four of us with the air conditioning going full and we were boiling yeah the, the the idea that a man has passed away and he's on the pavement under a tarp on the hottest day or one of the hottest days it just doesn't doesn't seem right it just doesn't seem like this is good enough for a city for a province when there are resources and you know you wonder um, you know if it was a police officer if it was somebody else would there be a more timely response I don't know but an elderly man who's passed away deserves the dignity to have his body removed in a timely way. That just seems what like what we should do. And six hours plus just does not seem like a timely, timely enough. Sean, we've just I just got a, a Twitter DM from a listener who's a massive fan of yours, and, and he's happy to hear your voice even under these circumstances. And he makes the point: What if this was a, an eight year old girl? What if this was a, a child? We, we, I, I I I weirdly think that they, there'd be more outrage, Sean. And I don't know that. That that's right. Is is a human not a human at the end yeah. of the day? Shouldn't they have the same response across all lines? Absolutely. I mean, this is the city, Greg. You know, I was in Ukraine for the war last year for a month, and there are bodies in war that don't get picked up. That's understandable. It's terrible, but it's understandable in those conditions. But we're in a city, a, the biggest city in Canada. Can't we find a way? Can't they find a way to expedite, to prioritize it so that this person you know, this person's remains are retrieved from a parking lot from plain view. I mean, the restaurant was still doing business just a few meters away. Uh, you know, the police did their best to sort of shield the body. And we're very conscientious as journalists not to dwell on things like this in terms of visuals and how we edit stories. But the reality is there's no, there's no doubting the fact that the body was left there for at least six hours. I've asked for follow-up and we're, we're going to do some reporting on this because I think people have a right to know what the service standards are and who is given priority and who is not. Dirk, uh, Dirk Hewer is the chief coroner for Ontario and he's, he's been in that position for a while. I, I know you've spoken to his office. I don't know if he's planning to, to put his own statement out, get in front of a microphone. But to your point, what's been the follow-up from the office of the chief coroner? They say they're looking into it. You know, I asked them for, you know, the logs to see how long did it take? What is their service standard? Is it two hours? Is it three hours? Um, you know, yeah. to try to get some, some more information about this. But the optics of this just, I mean, to, to me and to other journalists and to anybody who would have a, a family member, unfortunately, who, who might be killed in a situation, you know, you just don't, you just can't imagine that. And the, the excruciating heat 
I mean, that was really what did it for me, the idea that this yeah. would happen on one of the hottest days. You know what we do to try to stay cool on a hot day? And the idea that the, this person went to this plaza and lost their life, and then this indignity after the fact, it just seems beyond the pale. Sean O'Shea from Global News. Hey, you don't need my advocacy or support, but but I'm glad you said something about it because I think it's resonated in anybody that's listened to this segment. It's resonated with them as well. How would I feel if that's somebody I love or who loved me? So I'm glad you did what you did, and, and thank you for giving us your time this morning. Thanks, Greg, as always. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Uh, you got it. There, there's Sean O'Shea joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, we've got the Minister of Education for the province of Ontario. He is Minister Stephen Lecce. Mr. Lecce, thanks very much for the time today. I appreciate it. Good morning. Good to be back. Well, let's go current stuff. Really humid weather yeah. the last couple of days. I'm sure people have asked you, so I'll ask you. Air conditioning. Um, I think it's impossible in all schools across the province. I think it's unnecessary in all schools across the province. Could more schools have air conditioning than currently have it? I'm sure you've been asked. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, in fact, uh, our government is very proud that we delivered about $600 million in ventilation upgrades over the pandemic that allowed for modern HVAC systems to be put into schools that didn't have it. AC was installed in many schools just the highest quality filters just with respect to air ventilation, air quality. So that it was already done. We then provide school boards about $1.3 billion every single year to maintain and renew their schools for fans, air conditioning, things like that. So every school has cooling centers. They've taken action to help reduce the impacts to kids. But look, when it comes to our part for the province, we provide funding to school boards. They then decide where they invest it. And we've given them a great deal of discretion over this $1.3 billion fund where if they believe that's an important investment, they can make those investments. So we're going to continue to do that because we want to make sure the kids are safe, they're comfortable, and mm-hmm. appreciating it is a little warm at the beginning of uh, September and at the end of June. Uh, and we've taken great strides just to make the air quality better and make it more comfortable for the kids. Labor union talks. Uh, where do we stand? I know binding arbitration awaits. We shouldn't miss any school days. Kids shouldn't be home. Um, no strike, no lockout. How do we get to deals in the next several weeks? You know, I, I, I thought we really uh, demonstrated uh, some healthy momentum uh, in the province a couple of weeks ago when we put the interests of children first. Uh, I'm a big believer. I, I just feel so strongly that we have to exhaust every option um, to ensure children are in school. And I think, you know, we've now demonstrated with the high school teachers, we're talking about like 70, 80,000 public English high school teachers who've signed a tentative agreement on a process that keeps kids in school. That is what's important. And so I'm urging the other unions, the ELECTA, the Catholic, AFO and the French, and of course, Ethel in the public elementary teachers to come to the table and sign this deal. It is so obviously the fair way that we can adjudicate, we could, you know, resolve outstanding issues. And look, we do this with nurses. We do this with public transit workers. We do this with doctors. We do this right across the ministry and the economy. And now we're doing it with high school public teachers. We just want to do it with high school, with elementary public um, teachers as well. And so uh, we've really urged them to come to the table. We have dates set, Greg, but I, I'll, I, I'm not going to pretend. No, no. I, I, I've, heard, I've heard you're closest with the OSSTF to getting a deal done. Is that accurate? Yes, we have a tentative agreement, and it's now before the ratification. So the public elementary teachers, that, that tentative agreement is now uh, reached, and it's now before ratification of their membership. Um, the other folks are the ones that are... Uh, that have not been nearly as, uh, I think, willing to come to the table to keep kids in school. Look, if we can't 
you know, deal with outstanding issues. We have a credible third-party mechanism called interest arbitration where an independent person, which, by the way, all the parties agree to, decides mm -hmm. on these outstanding issues. Like it, it's, just so, it's just a common-sense option. You put it on the table. We had one large union say yes. And the rest mm -hmm. of them are saying no for now. So I'm using this interview and everyone I can to make the simple case that the welfare of children after years of pandemic difficulty and learning loss, that should be our singular priority. And I'm urging the unions mm -hmm. to do what's right. We go through this every few years in Ontario, and I think most sensible people um, want us to continue to respect our educators. We paid them the highest in Canada. We're going to keep doing yeah. that. But they also want their kids to be in school. And that's a sacrosanct mm -hmm. commitment we've made to the people of Ontario to keep kids in school so they can get back on track and we can get back to basics in the province when it comes to building skills that actually are going to help these kids. Yeah. Feed. Stephen Lech is our guest education minister for the province of Ontario. I was out in, the, in my community in Ajax last week, a lot of parents talking about uh, decisions to change pronouns. My job, your job, you're never going to make anybody, everybody happy every single day. Um, but the concept to me, Stephen, was the province needs rules. And some rogue educators don't want it, and some parents don't want it. But the debate is just, what's the age? Nova Scotia says it's 12, Saskatchewan says it's 16. Can you get closer in Ontario this academic year to hammering out what that age is and, and, and we go one way on one side of that age and the other way on the other side? You know, look, I, I've said before, uh, I mean, it's a sensitive matter. We want to be respectful because we're dealing with kids who are going through some difficulty and, and, and it can be very challenging. But I, at the end of the day, I, I think what the government is signaling at a very, uh, for, for our values, that reflecting those of the people we represent, that look, we believe parents want to have a role, want to have a say, want to be able to support their children. My instinct is the overwhelming majority of parents love and live for their kids. I believe that. And I know there are exceptions. I mean, in the sense that we don't, I think we all could appreciate there are exceptions that rule, but overwhelmingly that is the default. And therefore, uh, ways by which we can strengthen and empower parents uh, to support their kids is a good thing. And I appreciate that there are you know, forces on the other side that, that disagree with that premise. But I just think most sensible parents want to know, at least want to be more engaged in their child's education. And I believe fundamentally they should be in order to keep them safe, to keep them supportive, mm -hmm. and ultimately to help them get to the finish line of their academics. So and that's sort of been our, our position on this that we've shared. And I do think it reflects a lot of goodwill of people, loving parents who want to help their kids. So look, we've shared that, we've made that clear. Um, and I think ultimately the priority for us is just to make sure that parents have a role, be it for when it comes to school board accountability, academic achievement, curriculum. I just think they need to have a role, and many of them feel ignored increasingly by, uh, by some governments, school boards, et cetera, and that's a problem. And we need to ensure that, our, you know, that the voices we represent are reflected in our decisions. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm taking that position. I hear that loud and clear. Hey, thank you for the time today. These are all important issues. So please keep coming on. Come on a few weeks from now and, and let's update people as to where they're at, because it's uh, it's a it's 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 nothing's more important than education. I know I feel that way. You do as well. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. Have a good day. There's Stephen Lecce joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. You know how you're in a certain place in um, the calendar and you're like, oh, this reminds me of last year at this time. That happens sometimes, right? You think, um, I, I just mentioned the NFL season starting. I'm like, tonight in Kansas City. And I'm like, what was I doing last year on that Thursday? 
that the NFL season started. So you, you kind of go year by year and think this is what last Christmas was like or this was what New Year's Eve was like. I think Sheba were there with the teacher that's now in, like I remember now that we're around this time of year when um, an individual who was referring to himself as Kayla Lemieux was teaching at a school kind of more geographically close to you and showing up at work with with g- g- giant, is that the word? Larger, <laughs> pr- prosthetic You seem very breasts. uncomfortable right Thank now. Thank you, I'm blushing. Oh, you said the word breasts, okay. Yeah, that's the B word, one of them. And um, this year, there's uh, photos, there's two stories. It's amazing. We've often talked about how the star and the sun contrast their stories a little bit. I, th- I noticed that a lot during the pandemic. So here's the headline from the star. Police monitoring Hamilton School with controversial Halton teacher on first day. Okay. Now read the Toronto Sun. The Toronto Sun headline for the same story. And it's written by Brad Hunter. With police escort, teacher, multiple Z, 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 top. No, triple Z. Well, we're Z. Aren't we a Canadian Z? Z, 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 top. Gord, would you say I'm seeing Z, Z, top tonight? I guess you would Sorry, I interrupted you. Read it again. With police escort, (laughs) teacher... ZZZ top is queen for a day. Oh, Lord. And this is referring to a triple Z bra size. That's what they're coming. That's what the. Which again, to Gordon and I, we just don't, we don't know 30, 34s. I have no idea what what anybody is. I'm saying, I'm saying, I can guess how tall people, I I have no idea about (laughs) cups. I have no clue. Okay, well, with him, we knew it was over the top, and I'm calling him a him because this is what he's showed up. He's teaching at Nora Francis Henderson Secondary School in Hamilton right now. Uh, yesterday was the first day of school there, and he, he showed up on Tuesday. Now, you can imagine there were reporters from the Daily Mail, from the New York Post, where he actually did an interview saying that his breasts were real and it was a a, a, a a health issue that he suffered and, from. And he was born intersex, he told the New York yes, Post. Remember, we talked inter- to a reporter yes. about that. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, who managed to get him coming out of his building or going into his building carrying dog treats and some shopping bags dressed as a man right before that. Which This is like a Mad Libs. Dog treats. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, I did that's, that jumped so out at me. He showed up in Hamilton at this secondary school uh, dressed as a man. The breasts are gone. The triple Zs. They're gone. He's, uh, he's got, you know, he's, he's, still, he's got wavy hair. Uh, it's highlighted blonde. He's got blonde highlights in it. He's dressed as a man. He is a man. Uh, now, when this came out, I mean, I saw this coming. Did you see this coming? I don't know what I want to say I saw coming. Oh, let's be really, I... let's be brutally honest in this conversation. Respectful and honest. That's what I want out of this conversation. Because I think we're all, we all got duped. We were all fooled. Uh, women's bodies were made a complete mockery of. And... Uh, having- Not being a woman, I'm glad you like it's a it's a it's a weird world because I applaud you for saying that, but somehow I would be less allowed to say that by some segments of our society than you be allowed. And you should be able to say whatever you want about women or men because you have an opinion. And the wonderful thing about the world is everybody can have different opinions about things, and we but can I agree to disagree yours, sometimes. But you can be respectful, right? Men can be respectful about this conversation. Yes. We can have this conversation. So I do want to hear yours. But having to, I don't care if you're. Uh, a woman, I don't care if you identify as a woman, to have enormous breasts with erect nipples in a 14-year-old's face in a shop class all day long is absolutely inappropriate. That was never transphobic. Was there transphobia involved in this? 
Absolutely. Yeah, there was some. There were yeah, a there lot of transphobic people who came out of the woodwork to express their transphobic views, but we lost sight of the entire conversation because of them. But but uh, let me let me contrast that to note there were a lot of people who were so I like I, I don't think being pro trans, I don't I, I don't think they were that. They were just so extreme the other way to go. Anybody can do anything yeah, exactly. and wear anything and say they're whoever they are, and you just have to accept it. And if you ask a question about it, let alone dispute it, then you're transphobic. That's and I'm exactly like, whoa, it. whoa. Well, whoa, this whoa. cancel culture. That's what it is. You can't even have the conversation without being accused of being transphobic in this case. And, and I mean, we all had opinions of it. We were very careful and respectful, I feel, of how we spoke about this on the air and off the air in general. But these conversations were being had. Well, and our, this our, guy, show, our show, let me say this too. Our show talked about it and Alex's show talked about it. And I'm pretty sure Oakley talked about it. And a lot of shows talked about it. But I do wonder if we put the mirror back on ourselves, did we ask enough hard questions no, about what was happening? I don't and, think and, we did. And you mentioned the duping. But anybody that's going to dupe somebody, you go, what was the motivation? Why has this I'm changed? I'm assuming it's money. Yeah. I'm assuming. So he left Halton. And I'm calling him. He's a he. He's a he. I think he was always a he. I think we were all led down this path. Uh, I, I, to, I don't know what he wanted. Attention? Look, he got worldwide attention. That high school is on the map globally. So he got what he wanted. But to show up at a school looking like a cartoon character... I'm not even going to say a porn star. A it was a, it was an out of control Jessica Rabbit on steroids type scenario. He I, looked I, ridiculous. He looked absolutely inappropriate. You brought up a great point. Would we be having? Would be? Would we all? Would we all be this calm if he was a kindergarten teacher? No, there yeah. would be much more of an uproar about it. So these were high school students. They were grade nine students, fourteen year olds. He was their shop teacher at Halton District School Board. And he left Halton and he came to uh, to Hamilton. Do you think Halton paid him anything? I wouldn't even know. It's I have no idea. Because he's getting something out of this. He's getting something I, out of it. I, I have no idea, but you're right. And and listen, the sun, again, we're contrasting the sun and the star. The sun makes a point. It was a, quote, flashpoint in the cultural wars, roiling schools across North America. And I'm glad you said it. There's bad actors on both sides of the quote-unquote cultural wars regarding schools. I'm looking for like the fleshy middle where I really think 88 to 94% of people are that aren't so extreme as to be like hateful about it and, and, and intolerant and then to be accepting of you get to do anything anywhere in any workplace and you can call yourself anything and say you're this and say you're that and and maybe maybe this person um, who again is like he's coming to school. Listen, look at the, the the statement in the sun. There was also the hint of a beard. The yeah. last week, the Daily Mail double. captured her walking to school in shorts, a golf shirt, and running shoes. There was also the hint of a beard. I are we still? We can't. Are we still saying her? I I'm have. I'm, I'm quoting the sun. I have I no know, idea this, what no, this to is a do. Man. I, I do. And you I can. have an idea. Exactly. We were fooled. We were duped. This is a man. He got something out of it. On the first day of school, actually, it was a PA day, I believe. So the students went in on Wednesday. He showed up on Tuesday, but he made a pit stop at the Hamilton police station before going into school. He was in there for 30 minutes. 
And then as he was walking into the school, there was police there. I guess he wanted extra security. There were three security guards that wandered the premise of the school. You know who I feel for? I feel for the parents of this school. I feel for the students of this school. Because if they have to go through it all over, just the having the extra police presence, having the reporters out there, the attention that it brings to it, uh, even the conversation, seeing him walk up to the school dressed as he is with wavy. There's three security guards there. Like, Sheba, you make an amazing point. There's three security guards there. Like, what? What are we talking about? Who's paying for that? Exactly. I would assume the school board exactly. is. Who pays the school board? Taxpayers do. That's We are paying for that. Hamilton uh, parents are paying for that. What I learned from this is when something happens, you ask the questions. You have the conversations. We can't be scared to have these conversations anymore because we were all duped. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have no idea where it's going. I have no idea if those security guards still need to be there a month later is is, is a book coming? Is a Netflix special coming? I don't have a clue about this one. Maybe you do. Some say, of you. <laughs> say it one more time. Say the B word one more time before we go. No, but I will note the Toronto Sun makes great use of alliteration describing massive mammaries. Oh. I'm not going to say that again. And I'm not going to even like I've never said it before and I'm never saying it again. I've never put those two words back to back.